I would actually argue that one of the biggest business priorities is to feel good on it every single day, as much as you can, particularly when you're running your own little empire. So um, yeah, using that out of 10 rating was just so helpful and it shifted me up much faster within a couple of weeks. Welcome to the Business Mastermind Podcast with business strategist, speaker and author, Gavin Preston. Tap into this meeting of minds between everyday business people on their journey to master business growth. Join them as they share strategies, insights and shortcuts to help you survive and thrive in business and life as you scale your business and achieve a bigger impact. Hey, Gavin here. You love the audio format because you listen to podcasts. I'm a massive fan of learning through audio courses and books. What I particularly like about Knowable is that courses are short form, like a podcast, and expert-led, like an audiobook, with courses on leadership from the commander of the International Space Station and on startups from the co-founder of Reddit. Grab yourself 20% off with coupon code GAVIN, in capital letters G-A-V-I-N, which brings the price down to just over $3 a month. It's a no-brainer. Download the Knowable app or visit knowable.fyi. Use code GAVIN to get 20% off. Hey, Gavin here. Welcome to the Business Mastermind podcast. Today, Rose Radford is on the show. Rose is a powerhouse when it comes to developing inner entrepreneurial potential and what she calls inner wealth work. She focuses on working with uh, female entrepreneurs, female-led businesses, and um, helping them with their growth strategy. But she has this, uh, because of her Kinsey background, she has this really special blend and mix of the analysis and the thinking like a CEO and the the warmth that in a the uh, in a game work around growth and money really insightful conversation where we integrate kind of the yin and the yang the left brain and the right brain the sort of male and female energies um, and there's some real powerful insights that Rose shares not only from her time at McKinsey's advising to uh, the C-suite but also for what she's doing the work she's doing now with with women has a very, very powerful mission, which I love, is to help women attract and steward money for the great a good of the world. Hi, Gavin here. This is Mastermind Podcast. Welcome back. I am super excited about this conversation. So I'm going to be speaking, or we are now speaking to Rose Radford. Uh, Rose um, has got a very stellar sort of business background uh, from McKinsey's. She's a business strategist and sales coach speaker, and she spends a lot of time working with um, women, female entrepreneurship, and empowering women to grow their businesses, closing the income gap between female and male-led businesses. Today, we're going to talk about the insights and the lessons from um, Rosie's time in McKinsey's and how she's applying that in the SME sector. Um, at actually, some of the insights she shares in a fantastic TEDx talk, which we'll go into about the mindset around money and setting up your own business and Rosie's journey from handing a notice in at McKinsey's to starting up her own business. Um, and and there's a there's a a sharpness of intellect and a, a very quick thinking brain that we're going to be spending some time with today. And I'm supremely delighted to welcome you to the Business Mastermind podcast. Rose, welcome. Thank you. You're fantastic to be here. So before we jump into a little bit more about specifically the work that you're doing and you, the, the insights you're drawing from the world of the McKinsey into the modern day and your uh, ongoing development, Tell us your story, your bit of your career backstory and how you come to doing the great work that you're doing today. Oh, where should I start? Okay, I'll keep it brief. So I um, was the first girl 
from my university, first undergraduate female from my university to join McKinsey. Um, uh, that was a couple of years ago now. And if anybody doesn't know what McKinsey is, by the way, who's listening to this, it's like, what the heck is, what the heck are they talking about? Um, McKinsey is simply one of the world's best strategy consulting firms. And I spent my days helping CEOs, senior leadership, sometimes government as well, solve their most difficult strategic problems, which as you can imagine was pretty stressful, but very fascinating. Um, so I left Bath University uh, to join McKinsey and um, massive imposter syndrome straight out of the gate because everybody else was Yale, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge. <laughs> I was like, Bath. Oh. Um, but that was really the beginning of my journey in uh, really mastering strategic thinking um, and strategy consulting, of course. Now, the more interesting part of my story actually happens before then, um, at the age of seven, I would say, where my parents were running a business that was struggling and running businesses is hard. It's not the glamorous thing that we might see online sometimes. And um, we would have, well, they would have conversations at the dinner table about how they're going to pay the mortgage next month. And so money for me has always been very present. Conversations around it have always been very open. And um, I realized that is quite different to a lot of other people who had an upbringing that was much more around money is not spoken about. Um, and the seven year old me really, really wants to help them, really wants to help them figure out how to make more money, how to pay the mortgage, how to solve the problems. But of course I had no idea how. That seven year old desire though, has really fueled me ever since. So at the age of 19, I was at university and I would literally cycle across Bath City every Saturday and often every Wednesday as well to go and see um, the owner of a charity shop to help her drum up, drum up footfall and reduce her costs. And I was essentially mentoring her without really realizing what I was doing. I just loved helping her. And that was when I really began to fall in love with helping female entrepreneurs grow their businesses. Um, I then, after university, went to Kenya before joining McKinsey and there I was helping six entrepreneurs there as well. So it's always been a love within me and a desire within me to help entrepreneurs, probably because I wanted to help my, my parents as a child. And that's really where the passions come from. But I spent a couple of years at McKinsey. I burnt out. I um, was put on medical leave for two months to recover. And it, it was that point at which I pivoted and decided to go back to the thing that I loved the most, that I um, really enjoyed, which is helping female entrepreneurs and use everything that I'd learned at McKinsey and previous to that to help those people um, and develop my expertise even, even more in that area. I didn't realize I could have a business out of that at that stage, it was mid twenties. I had no idea you could make a business out of helping entrepreneurs, but lo and behold, you can. So here I am three years later. Uh, it's just, a, I, I love that story. I absolutely love the story. And I, I want to sort of unpack a, a, a couple of bits, bits of it. That experience as a child about money being present, being introduced to the world of business, entrepreneurship, small businesses, the challenge that goes with it. We, I, I was exposed equally similarly. My dad was a self-employed commission only salesman earlier on in his career. And the, the peaks and troughs of his, you know, he, he could go a whole week. He tells Steins out on a story that he went a whole week, didn't make a sale. And at four o'clock on the Friday afternoon, he did one order that, you know, paid the bills for the whole of the week in, in terms of the commission. So that ups and downs, that presence of money. And then when he went on and he set up his own businesses, um, getting involved with running his cash flow, paying his suppliers, helping him think through, 
you can often, and, and there's a relevance for bringing this point out, you can often take for granted that the value of that education, that insight that many that go into business haven't had. Yeah, totally agree. Being at that dinner table, I learned the value of choosing to master money rather than avoiding it. Um, to think about money as something that you can learn and get really good at managing. Um, and that has been so valuable and also not to worry about talking about it. It doesn't have to be a taboo subject. And I honestly believe that if we were all to talk about money a lot more, such as the salaries that we earn, we wouldn't have the gender corporate salary gap as much um, because people would know what people are being paid. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't match up with mine. I need to talk about that with somebody because we're so tight about it. It doesn't allow us to have that understanding of what money is, how much people are being paid and how to actually master that so that it doesn't become stressful or, or worrying as, as a subject for anybody. I want to come back to that in a, in a moment. I want to go back to your early days at McKinsey's. So you were, you know, the new, um, you obviously graduate by this stage or, yep, so you're the new graduate in the team. As you say, you're the only girl from Bath University, sorry, I should say Bath, <coughs> Bath University, and just so everybody, I, I've got an idea, but the, the people that you were sat down engaging with in the client base, um, in the corporates, talking about strategy, would you just like to give a kind of a caricature of the typical avatar, avatars, a better word, of the typical person that in your early 20s, mid-20s, you were advising? I, I'm silently laughing really hard here because I'm just thinking of all the memories coming back in those first couple of months. So the, the typical avatar is called Dave. He's middle-aged. He, um, <laughs> he likes to ask, ask me on week one, so how long have you been working at McKinsey for? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. not long, not long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I joke. But um, the, the sort of conversations I would be having would be with CEOs or senior leadership in the C-suite. Um, we would be solving things such as how, how to integrate two companies. There was one big American company that was buying a smaller British company. Um, how do we integrate the HR function? How do we integrate finance? How do we control this situation in a way that things don't explode? I love um, this. Can I just pause you there? So, yeah. I, 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 so many people talk about imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. So you're in your early days with McKinsey. You're fresh out of uni and you evidently, eyes, eyebrows are being raised because, you know, how long you've been at McKinsey's, how on earth are you going to be able to add any value? How did you stay present believing in yourself so that you were able to add value to those conversations because this is this is an art this is a trick um that everybody needs in life and the odds were stacked against you in terms of credibility in that moment weren't they oh so much yeah I found myself doing things like dressing like my mother so I could look oh, older no. <laughs> <laughs> um so, yeah, that's so funny that I reflect, reflect on that now um I also mastered the art of the consultant way of speaking which is like I'm not entirely sure what I'm saying him I'm going to say it really confidently so people believe in it and then I'll go figure out the facts later on yeah, yeah. uh I love it because when I actually started um my exec coaching stuff I was like 26 and I was coaching people of the same caliber that you were doing your um, McKinsey strategic consulting with. And I remember being challenged like you were and um, you know, what's, what's this young kid going to be able, how's he going to be able to help me? And I, I remember that myself coaching, which was, well, I don't need to be an expert on your business. I understand the process. I understand the tools. I know I can get a result. And I think at times we need to be able to do that. So um, 
you were learning a trade though you were learning a craft around so was the was there a, a training and induction period where you were shown the models the way of thinking and 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 the McKinsey's approach uh yes there was a couple of weeks of that but really it's about learning on the job and being apprenticed mm. as they say um, which means that things go wrong in really, really big ways. So I would describe that environment as being quite, quite high octane. You make one mistake, it has a huge ripple effect. One mistake in an Excel model, you're screwed. You end up reporting the wrong number to the C-suite, and then you have to backtrack yourself and explain why it's wrong, for instance. Um, you send a slide to the wrong person, and um, it might show, for instance, they're going to lose their job next month when the merger finishes oh crap, we've made a massive error. Like stuff like that, it was such a high octane how did you situation. Cope? How did you cope with that pressure? Um, I would say that I numbed out. If I'm being really honest, I had to find a place of numbing out, which was the start of the burnout situation because I wasn't tuned into how I was really feeling. Um, super stressful, feeling as though I wasn't good enough the whole time. And also being told I wasn't good enough because you get constant feedback. And um, that's helpful in learning really quickly. But as somebody who already feels like they're potentially not good enough, any minor bit of feedback feels like it's negative feedback. Um, and we all struggled with this. You'd have to have like a huge ego or sense of real like strength within yourself, which to be honest, most early 20 year olds don't feel like that. Um, so yeah, there was a, a lot of rebuilding to do within my self-esteem after the whole experience. Well, that's what was going to be my next question. How did you come back from that? How did you rebuild that confidence? I, um, it's taken me two or three years since, I'll be really honest. Um, and I, well, I started training as a coach just as I left McKinsey, which gave me so many answers to why I was feeling the way I was feeling. Hey, Gavin here. You love the audio format because you listen to podcasts. I'm a massive fan of learning through audio courses and books. What I particularly like about Knowable is that courses are short form, like a podcast, and expert led, like an audiobook, with courses on leadership from the commander of the International Space Station and on startups from the co-founder of Reddit. Grab yourself 20% off with coupon code GAVIN, in capital letters, G-A-V-I-N, which brings the price down to just over $3 a month. It's a no-brainer. Download the Knowable app or visit knowable.fyi. Use code GAVIN to get 20% off. So you started to train as a coach, and, and through that process, you got some of the insights to be able to um, create meaning, put a more positive meaning to what went on. Yeah, definitely. I do find though, um, coaching is fantastic and obviously being trained as a, as a coach is great, but it's all um, surface level in sense of like, you're working with your conscious mind a lot. And in the last six months, I've got to the point in my business where it's the subconscious work that has been the most valuable because you can only get so far with the conscious mindset work. But the first two and a half years, the conscious work was enough. I can see that, um, you know, what, what's really evident when you, well, it's evident to me from my background and the, and the training I have and the sense of security awareness I've got is that you can see when the depth of the work is almost like skin deep and somebody saying one thing and there's a phrase I use um, is I'm hearing it or I, I'm seeing it, but I ain't feeling it. Mm. And when somebody's actually done the deeper work, there's a strength of resonance to look, I'm sure in my skin now and um you're like, like we all are with the biggest challenges we're better people uh, all for it so just on that journey of coming back from you know pretty much being mentally and emotionally beaten up in terms of your self-worth was the one practice was the one insight that really helped kind of flick a switch for you yeah it was one thing I did every single morning it sounds so freaking basic but it worked 
I would rate how I was feeling out of 10. And really? this scale would work in the one to three is the stress zone. Yeah. Four to six or seven is like, I'm kind of okay. Eight, nine, 10, like you're in the green zone, you're feeling peaceful, you're feeling good, you're feeling really happy. It's, it's kind of like, well, 10 is kind of like Nirvana. So most people aren't 10s unless like something amazing has just happened. Um, and I found that while I was at McKinsey, I was always between a one and a three. I was consistently in the stress zone. Yeah, yeah. When I left McKinsey, I was no longer in an environment that made me feel stressed and unsure of myself and full of self-doubt and all, all those feelings. But I was just at a four every single day. And then I would ask myself, what's it going to take today for me to feel good and to just move it up to a five? And I made myself really, really responsible for how I was feeling on a daily basis. Now I can come in at a six or seven really nicely every single day without doing much. But it was about raising that feel good set point within myself, because I would actually argue that one of the business, biggest business priorities is to feel good on, it, on it every single day as much as you can, particularly when you're running your own little empire. So, um, yeah, using that out of 10 rating was just so helpful and it shifted me up much faster within a couple of weeks. That's brilliant. And then did you incorporate, whether it be visualization, meditation, yoga, something that helped you move that up? Yeah, I did. So it was often visualization, moving my body more um, and getting outside. It was like basic stuff, but bearing yeah, in mind yeah. that I'd spent typically 12 hours a day in an office, getting mm. outside had a huge impact on how I felt. Great. I want to move on. So you set up your new business. Um, how long after you set up your new business did you get the opportunity to do a TEDx talk? Um, I think it was after a year. It always been something on my heart that I really wanted to do. And I finally, like, I finally said, sod it, I'm going to do it. And I'll be honest, it was the first time I'd been on stage in years. I used to do some public speaking at school because I was yeah. one of those nerds. <laughs> well, you, I tell you what, you could tell you were a little bit nervous to start off with, but what brilliantly done, obviously supremely well prepared and practiced. But your opening line, I think, is probably one of the best of any TEDx suite. And I want to dive into that because there's something that links back to what you're talking about, the taboo subject of money and salary, etc. So your opening line was, money is like sex. So obviously that's got everybody and it was I think it was in a university setting wasn't it so so yeah. that would that would create a real good engagement with your with, with your audience what's the point you're making there that it's an awkward subject for lots of people um it, it's yeah pretty taboo um it's maybe for a lot of people their parents necessarily wouldn't want to talk about it so openly with them and um yeah it's a bit of a no-go zone in many ways yeah sure so you go on to tell a story about how you became okay with money and about looking after it, nurturing it, grow it. What have been some of the sort of either things, your insights you've had that have helped you have a very good relationship with money? And even at a point when literally, I think you said you started your own business, you, you registered the limited company, you had three months of savings. And it was like, <clears throat> what next? So at the time when it appears like the reserves are dwindling and the, the, the replenishment revenue isn't coming in, I think those are the moments which some people struggle. So what have been your insights around thinking, mindset, attitude towards money when there's maybe some cash flow challenges? Two words, self-trust. That wow. was the reason for why I made that huge leap that looked ridiculous on the outside. Um, and it was because I always trusted myself to find the money when I needed to find it. And even when I was right down to, to the last kind of couple of hundred, the opportunity came in right on time. Um, and I always knew it was going to happen. That self-trust to a level of certainty and complete and utter faith 
then stops you from letting that primal brain freak out about the fact that you maybe you can't pay your bills next month. And when you're in that primal fear, it really narrows your opportunity to see, see opportunities, basically. It narrows your thinking because you're so fear-based. Whereas when you're coming from a place of self-trust and certainty that the money will absolutely show up, you're much more relaxed and that allows you to then see opportunities, make connections with people, have conversations, not from a place of fear, but from a place of, I'm just going to sit here and watch the money come in here right now, rather than want it to come in. Oh, that's a distinction. Watch it rather than want it. So the mindset is one of, this is done, it's happened. Yeah. How do you hang on to that? Or how did you find a way of hanging on to that when you were down to your last few, you know, hundred pounds? It was about shifting myself back into that place of certainty every single time. And that's where the work is ultimately. When we, when we talk about money mindset work, um, yes, it's about looking at your beliefs, looking at your actions and that are impacting your money. But um, in that moment of real, let's say fear or scarcity, the work is getting out of scarcity and into certainty um, and back into a space of faith. Um, for me, I would usually grab a pen and a piece of paper or journal and like, work my way through the fear. That's how I process stuff quite quickly. Um, other people are better talking it out or thinking it out or something. Um, so yeah, I would look at like, what is specifically going through my head right now? How serious is it? How can we shift this into a place and space of um, certainty and faith and operate from that place instead? And where I said like wanting versus watching, the energy of wanting is like you're constantly wanting it the whole time. Um, so that means you're always going to be in the wanting, whereas the energy of watching is definitely in that place of certainty and just looking at, ah, that's where the money's come in. Interesting. Cool. Nice. So let's um, just uh, jump to the work that you're doing now. So you're, um, you're, you're working with female, female entrepreneurs to help them grow their businesses, to close that income gap. What do you find are the most common challenges that um, you were asked to, or are presented to you to, to help your clients with? Undercharging is a big theme. Sure. The big transformation I see in a lot of my clients is to raise their rates, also raise their internal sense of value. Um, I've seen clients that have literally doubled or tripled their rates overnight for the same package and then signed the same client on at that higher rate because they were undervaluing themselves so much. So seeing that transformation is really cool. The second big thing is client attraction. A lot of the questions are around like, how do I actually grow this? Where does the, where can the next piece of revenue come from? Um, and I love it when women are on, my clients are on the other side of that, when they feel like they actually have control of their income. They know exactly what to do to go and drum up the sales. And that is so liberating. Um, I loved it when I got to that space and place in my business and being able to gift that to other women is just the best thing ever. Do you have a process that you go take your clients through to help them raise that internal value so that they can double treble their, their, the fees that they're charging? So it depends on each client because the fact that they're undervaluing themselves will be, will be driven by different things for different people. Um, for some people, it's a case of actually narrowing down on what is the value of what you're delivering here. Um, one of my clients who is a marketing expert delivering marketing um, services to restaurants and bars over in Los Angeles, we realized that for that client of hers to go and get all of the services individually from different providers that she was currently providing would cost them like 10 grand a month. She was charging about a thousand a month. Like you might be able to increase, increase your rates here, girl. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
that's kind of like sometimes it's really analytical and sometimes it's a case of seeing the value to the client so one of my um, clients is a coach to children that have just come out of their parents divorcing so the first couple of years and um she was obviously charging way, way, way below market rate, like less than a hundred pounds an hour, for instance. And she shifted her rate up to a thousand. And one of the things allowed her to do that and to feel good about it was recognizing that if, if that child wasn't supported in those first couple of years, after such a big change in their family, they will struggle to access education later on in life. They might end up in therapy later on in life. Stuff's going through their head that they can't actually communicate that's going to leave them in a space and place of not being able to access things later on in life or enjoy life to the much as they could the value of that is huge and she can then reflect that in her prices amazing and that's a powerful reframe that positions the the difference that's going to make to the client or the the the, uh, client's clients clients customers over time brilliant and but that so much of your worth is reflected in your self-worth or rather the other way around your self-worth is reflected in your worth and work on your self-worth can and, and the impact and I think for a lot of people they're probably quite humble around what they deliver and I often find in businesses they go into and working with them on their strategy there's a point where they'll say well doesn't everybody do it like this and that for me that's the often the point of differentiation it's the gem or or the diamond that needs polishing up and you know a, a, you know hung and, and sort, of, uh, sort of mounted whatever properly so that that actually can become a point of differentiation uh, real value in there definitely so oh, the <clears throat> insights that you got how how do some of the, the the learnings around the strategic thinking the analysis or even the experience you had at mckinsey's in terms of what you were exposed to in what ways do you bring that into the intervention into the work you do with your customers with your clients lots of different ways try and keep it brief so one of the things would be to look at business and entrepreneurship with a less of an emotional attachment being able to look at it from a strategic thinking perspective then allows my clients to make decisions that are less emotion driven um, and that often leads to better decision making as a result Another thing would be to gather and look at data and make decisions as a CEO, even if you've only got a six figure business, still be thinking like a CEO and um, equipping them with that kind of thinking is really important as well. Um, I'd also say that my huge commitment to excellence allows me to obviously infuse that into my own client's way of, of thinking, but it also allows me to separate from the rest of the industry my industry is, is full of everybody <laughs> and there's some great people and there's some not so great people and I'm deeply committed to excellence and that doesn't mean that I get it right every time but it does mean I'm committed to doing it better every time and most people I'd say a lot of people do not necessarily have that desire to constantly better be better than they were before um, and being able to share that mentality with my clients allows them to raise their own bar again and again um, and a lot of my clients really value success, growth and achievement. So it's very aligned with them. What I think is fascinating with what you said there is um, enabling uh, your clients to look at the business from a less emotion driven point. But actually, we've just been talking about issues such as self-worth, which is very emotionally driven. Mm-hmm. So the ability, which I think is a is a, a real sort of differentiation or, or point of brilliance uh, 
for you, Rose, is that the ability to know which mode or left, right brain, which part to go into. So there's a time and a place where we need to be less emotion, look at the data, analyze it like a CEO. But we recognize that we are emotional beings and we have to address some of the subconscious programming that might be going on. Um, And yet within the world of coaching consultancy, you usually have either one or the other. You bridge the two together, you integrate the two, which of course is what the, is the solution for complex integrated human, you know, that's what we need as human beings to create the end result. So yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. Um, and for you, it's just probably as fluid as speaking a language as you dip between the two different kind of modes of thinking. Yeah, definitely. It's almost like the feminine and the masculine or the yin and the yang. It's the two yeah, together. Yeah that a lot of people end up on one side or the other. And that's one of the unique things about me that you're not the first to call that out. I just think it's me, but having that reflected back at me again and again is, is really valuable because you don't realize your own like uniqueness. And so um, I was only sort of reflecting at home over, over the last week that since when I started coaching, the world of coaches is so much more populated mm-hmm. and so much noisier. And um, so therefore I listen to a lot of coaches and there's obviously a subconscious process where I'm um, validating, sifting, deciding whether I find them um, credible or worthy of, you know, engaging with or not. And um, we were both on that, you know, new platform that's got the craze clubhouse. And I, uh, I heard you speak and immediately there was, I recognized because, uh, you know, I'd come from that consultancy, big six kind of background. I recognized the substance and the credibility and the depth. That's the word I was looking for, the depth in what you were saying from a business point of view. But there was the warmth, there was the insight, et cetera, that came to me. And I went, wow, I've got to get Rose on the podcast. And that, that, that for me makes you stand out um, as a coach. But I, I just know that there's this potency in the impact of your work because of how you bridge those things to get together and all it was fueled by obviously an excellence, but it's fueled by a a real mission as well. Oh yeah. Big time. A lot of mission behind what I do. Um, And this is where my story gets super cliched by the way, (laughs) because um, the mission that I um, have written on my heart really came from my time in Bali a little while ago and being able to take that space and time to really dive into what am I really here for? And What do I want to create with the business? What's the mission? What's the purpose here? And of course, it's cliched because I was in Bali, but um, it's where you go for things like that. (laughs) So yeah, my my mission and the one that's written really on my heart is that I help women attract and steward money for the greater good of the individual and the world. And everything that I do in my business is about fulfilling that mission. So um, So again, I help women. I help women attract and steward money for the greater good of the individual and the world. Wow. Powerful. Um, I just write that down because I want to be able to catch that in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> that was just fantastic. Um, you can see that self-worth, uh, self-work has come through in terms of um, how you show up. Now, you strike me as the kind of person that doesn't suffer fools. So you stuck with the journey, the distance about doing the inner work and the strategic work that, you know, the the emotion stuff and the analysis stuff to get the results at your time after McKinsey and in McKinsey. I'm sure that some of your clients will wobble on the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You show up as not only as the finished object, but evidently you've done the work. How, how do you help someone that wants to go on the journey that you're shining the spotlight, the path to, but has a wobble, whether it's, um, around their self-worth, whether it's around some of the, the, the traction on their business strategies and happening at the speed that they want. 
how do you help them through that without getting frustrated? (laughs) I celebrate it when they're in that space of this sucks, I hate it, everything's falling apart or whatever it is that's going on. That point at which you hit that damn freaking wall, I get really excited for my clients because that's often one side of a breakthrough. And then it's a case of saying, all right, what's going to happen on the side of this? What do you want from here? And what's it going to take for you to get there? Um, is it that you need to shift an inner belief? Is it that you need to start doing something entirely different? Um, is it that actually this is all going in through your head and you just need to give it a week? So I, I love it when, when clients hit walls. It's like, brilliant, time for a breakthrough. <laughs> you say before every breakthrough, there's a breakdown. And yeah. uh, I've got a trial record of helping clients double their business in terms of the revenue in, in a year or less. And uh, there was always, without fail, you could almost set you, your watch to it. A, a couple of months in, things were going well. Revenue was going like this. Oh, sorry, if you were listening, you wouldn't see what a hand gesture, but revenue was a steep upward incline. And um, all of a sudden, there would be some kind of a side swipe. It was like the wheels had fallen off the wagon and they had that wobble. And I, my response is exactly the same as yours, Rose, which is, uh, great, this means there's a breakthrough going to be happening. And they didn't always like it. The great story of a, of a client, they're the manufacturing um, picture frames and mirror frames, et cetera. And they had 95% of their business in um, Amazon. And then uh, I said to them, you need to develop other channels to market, other platforms. Their own website was a, was hardly any uh, traffic on it. And um, no, no, we're too busy. We're too busy. And then they got moved they'd agreed to move with Amazon to a different program, a, a, a different sort of offering or, or a, stra- a strategy within Amazon. And Amazon mucked up the listings. And overnight, they lost 80% of the revenue. And it took six weeks, uh, seven weeks to get any of their listing back up. They have an overhead, they have a factory. And I was saying, look, I know it feels now like the wheels are falling off the wagon, but now is the opportunity to get on other, channel- other platforms. So they worked really hard on that because they had no excuse. They couldn't be busy on Amazon. And then the six weeks later, they came back up on Amazon. They'd already got these channels working on another platform. And that month became the very single best month they'd ever had in their business to date. So there's often a breakthrough after that breakdown. I love that. That's such a brilliant story. Um, I am quite a forward thinker. So I will often expect stuff like that to happen as well. And you obviously you saw it in their business. One quick example of that is that recently I got one of my Facebook ad accounts shut down. So I have a marketing team over in the US and obviously I was accessing it from the UK. So Facebook got freaked out thinking it was all fraudulent, shut me down. It's okay, I'd, I'd created five backup accounts. So it didn't stop us. So it's things like that where like you can see what might potentially happen and you can build some systems in, in place first, but not everybody has that foresight, um, which is why working with somebody who does have that foresight is quite helpful sometimes. Yeah, and that's the benefit of, of, of bringing somebody externally in to take a look at your business and to spot things that you've seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are there any things that any mistakes you saw larger corporates making that actually you now make sure that individuals in SMEs don't make from the insights that you got from being around the C-suite? Listen to their freaking customers more. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe it's because I was um, so far away from the customers a lot of the time when w- working in corporate. Um, but there was lots of moments in which I, I was really thinking, but how's this going to impact the customer? How's this going to impact people in the company as well sometimes? Um, whereas in entrepreneurship, you have got to have your, like, your ear to the ground for the customer response and what's happening for them every single day. Um, otherwise, you jeopardize the business not going the direction that it needs to. So, um, yeah, that was the biggest disconnect I found. So, um, 
I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I found it really engaging and stimulating. I noticed on the wall behind you, you have a brilliant quote, you are your only limit. And Rose, I think you've been an amazing example about how at times you've been stretched to and beyond your limits, but you found a way of doing, you know, doing the work to overcome that. And I could imagine when you go and work with the, your client base, the um, female entrepreneurs, you're a, you're a force of nature, but you also help them to integrate that yin and the yang, the female and the masculine required for success in business. So you're a gift. And for anybody who would like to experience that, how do they get hold of you? Sure. Yeah. So I spend a lot of my time on Instagram. Um, I'm at I am Rose Radford, and I think we're also popping a couple of goodies in the show notes here as well. Um, at my pricing cheat sheet for coaches, um, as well as a few other sales things. So um, yeah, you can find me on Instagram. I'm also on LinkedIn, just Rose Radford, and um, feel free to check out my website. But it's always changing. Things are always adapting. Given given I am responding to client needs. <laughs> Fantastic, Rose. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Hey, Gavin here. Some real takeaways for me from the conversation we've just had with Rose. Self-trust to a level of certainty stops the primal brain freaking out. Love that. And actually this distinction, which I've never heard before, about wanting versus watching. You know, watching is inbred with the uh, the presupposition that it's already happening. It's going to happen. You have complete faith, that idea of self-trust. You know, watch watching versus wanting powerful stuff you know and what other lessons that you get from um from mckinsey's you know less emotional driven gather and look at data as if you're a ceo even if you've only got a six-figure business and having a huge commitment to excellence rose thank you so much for your time and if one of the things that might help you watch rather than want is having clarity of your plan, a 90-day plan of what you do in your business, then um, ping me a note, Gavin at Gavin Preston, and to find out more about our quarterly strategic planning groups, because this is one thing that if you've got a 13-week plan that gives you absolute clarity about where you're going in your business, and that sits within an overall growth strategy, it is a real powerhouse, in my experience, to the growth, not only at the top line, but importantly, the bottom line in your business. So reach out, Gavin at Gavin Preston. And also, if you're in on Clubhouse yet, then uh, follow me on Clubhouse. It's at Gavin Preston. And we can continue these conversations over there. You've been listening to the Business Mastermind podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that more people like you can get their business back on their own terms, enjoy more success and create more impact. <laughs>